and welcome to Fatten, a podcast where we get into the thick of it. My name is Layla Cameron, and I am an academic, journalist, and artist. Most of my work revolves around body politics and fat liberation. This season, we're exploring what it's like to be fat in Vancouver, a place often referred to as Canada's thinnest city. When I first began my research in fat studies, I read a book called Fat Activism by Charlotte Cooper. In this book, Charlotte identifies five different forms of activism. One of these forms is microactivism, which is described as thoughtful behaviors that occur in everyday spaces. One of the examples in the book is the act of designing your home to be comfortable for your body. And when I read that, I realized that I had never considered my physical comfort when designing my home or making decisions about what furniture to buy. And I don't think that I'm the only one to have never thought of my own comfort before, because I think this reflects how fat people are told to treat our bodies. We are told that we are supposed to be uncomfortable. We're not supposed to fit into anything not our homes, and definitely not public spaces. The guest for this first episode is Kate Blake. Kate is the Administrative Director for Kickstart Disability, an organization that supports artists with disabilities and works to enhance accessibility in arts spaces. In this episode, Kate identifies how the architecture of a particular place can send a strong message about who is and isn't welcome. We also talk about accessibility audits and what steps can be taken to help transform public spaces to be more accommodating for everyone. Well, to start off, I was wondering if you could please identify yourself um, and include your pronouns, but also any positionalities that you feel are important to this interview and what we're going to be talking about today. Absolutely. Um, So I am Kate Blake. My pronouns are she, her, also comfortable with they, them. Um, I... In terms of positionality, I'm a disabled person. I live with multiple disabilities, including including invisible and uh, visible as well, and also identify as a, a fat babe, I guess. <laughs> I love that that's that your um, fat identity is fat babe. Yeah. I might need to steal that. <laughs> do you um, are you familiar with the fat spectrum and do you use any other terminology to describe yourself in terms of your size like super fat, mid fat or um, or plus size? I, I want to make sure that we're using the right words that you feel comfortable with. Absolutely. Um, I am familiar with the spectrum. Um, I believe now I would be considered a super fat um, for me. Uh, I fully understand the value of that spectrum, but to me, I'm just fat. I was born fat. I've spent my whole dang life fat. Um, so yeah, really that's, that's the word is good enough to encompass what I am as far as I'm concerned. So I want to talk to you a bit about your work and your own personal experiences navigating public spaces, but just to start off, I'm wondering if you can tell me a bit about how public spaces have typically been designed. Absolutely. Um, I think in general, our public spaces are being designed for non-fat, non-disabled people, um, which for most people consider that's the majority of society. I don't necessarily agree with that. Um, So I think a lot of spaces aren't necessarily are attempting to be universally accessible, but within that um, are not. And so you and your work undertake accessibility audits. And for people who might not be familiar with that 
term or what that is, can you define what an accessibility audit is? Absolutely. Um, there are all different types of accessibility audits. Um, I specifically work for an arts organization. So generally when we're doing audits, we are auditing um, event spaces, um, cultural and arts spaces. So what an audit essentially is, is you're bringing in an expert, ideally someone who actually um, lives in that body or lives with a disability uh, to take part in that and assessing the physical space um, and addressing all of the access needs, things from seating, lighting, a uh, space in which someone can move around in, and um, then giving recommendations to the space on ways they can improve or what they might already be doing well. So in theory, an accessibility audit might be trying to define what a universal design might be. How do you feel about that term or how do you feel about the concept of any kind of universal uh, fully accessible design. Um, I I love the spirit of it, um, but I I personally don't agree that universal design exists um, because even within groupings of communities' needs, when it boils down to an individual, every individual's needs are different, um, and it I think it's impossible to address every single person's needs. But that's not to say that you shouldn't try. You know, bringing in someone who has a better understanding of the various needs of the community. So ideally, you want folks within those communities to come in. And considering not just your physical spaces, but also is, your, is this a safe space for everyone? Is this a uh, culturally sensitive space. So those are all aspects of accessibility that aren't necessarily just physical. Um, universal design is is great in theory, but even within groups of people that have similar needs, each of those individuals has a different need. So we can create spaces and foster spaces that address as many of those needs as possible. I think there are sort of some baseline things that spaces can address that will be almost universal, but not quite universal. What would some of those things be? Like if you wanted to make a space as accessible as possible, what are some of the factors that you would typically consider? Um, I would say uh, the first being no stairs, no lips uh, in a floor or anything like that. Therefore, people can move smoothly, whether they are using a mobility device or they're walking, um, having wide aisles between fixed pieces of furniture or having furniture that um, and fixtures that can be moved to accommodate different needs. Um, thinking about lighting, um, and uh, the brightness of lighting, thinking about sound, um, how loud is your space, and uh, seating in general, having an ar array of seating or having seating without arms, things that some are a little higher, some are a little lower, and just really thinking about how different bodies will move through the space, you know, especially in terms of speaking about fatness. And what other factors would you consider when you're trying to specifically accommodate fat bodies? 
Um, well, certainly um, seats are the biggest thing. Um, I think we we all have our, our own horror stories of of seating. So in, in terms of seating, I feel the, the best way to go is always something that doesn't have arms on it. Though some, some folks find it more comfortable. But if you're just sort of getting that universal baseline, you're having lots of different people, um, the seating, I think, is the first and most approachable way to to include the fat community and make them comfortable. Because, you know, if my, you know, 375-pound body can fit comfortably in a chair, then a non-fat person is going to also fit comfortably in that chair. I feel like critics of accessibility audits or people who might be resistant to them are people who feel like those accommodations or factors are not conducive to certain aesthetics or the beauty of a space and they might hide behind that what would you say to someone who resisted making these accommodations or adjustments to let's say a restaurant um i would say uh they're ridiculous (laughs) and that uh in especially now when there are so many options in terms of aesthetics available to us that that's no excuse um that's just the space the individual not wanting to put the time and effort maybe not wanting to put the money in because i feel especially for smaller businesses or smaller organizations that might be doing community programming cost tends to be a factor but the reality is you can find the money you just need to decide where to, to change things like that. If I could give an anecdotal example of that, a venue here um, is a like a theater. And, you know, they were speaking with a former coworker of mine about not being able to afford accessibility. And they brought up, well, when you do your fundraisers, how much do you spend on a bottle of wine? And they say, oh, you know, $100 a bottle of wine. And my colleague suggested, well, maybe go with the bottle of wine, a $40 bottle of wine, and you've found your money to address those access needs. Sometimes I feel like pushing those questions back or reflecting the questions back to folks kind of forces them to reveal where their priorities are. Yes, definitely. And also that perhaps what they are resisting as well is that their concept of a beautiful space is one that is not fat-friendly because we don't see accommodations for fat people as being beautiful things. And that I think it does sort of reveal just how pervasive fat stigma is in people's attitudes that, you know, we can nod our heads and sort of say like, oh yeah, that's acceptable, that makes sense. And we hide behind things like, you know, finances or whatever to really mask that underlying value system. And again, I'm not, I'm not accusing designers of public spaces or architects or what have you, you know, restaurant designers or anything like that of not wanting fat people in their spaces. But I do do want to ask them those questions. Absolutely. Because ultimately what you're saying is that your comfort, your safety, your well-being is not worth more to me than these other things. And I, I think that people would feel uncomfortable if we framed these conversations in that way. 
And I think in this situation, um, those people need to be a little bit uncomfortable, you know, as someone who's been fat my whole life, I've spent, you know, 40 years being uncomfortable. Uh, it's time for non-fat people to take on some of that lab labor and sit with that discomfort and unpack why are they uncomfortable about that? And, you know, how would they feel going into a space where they aren't comfortable and their needs aren't being met, even in the most basic ways? I'll never forget, I have a friend of mine who is not fat, has never been fat, but when she was pregnant, she sent me a message and she said, I'd never realized how much public scrutiny I was, or how, how many p opinions of people I didn't even know I was going to receive on my body because now it looks different and how I was gonna move through spaces differently. Mm -hmm. And I remember thinking like, yeah, it's been my whole life. Yep, absolutely. I've had, I've had pregnant friends have the same experiences as well. And, you know, also thinking of it from um, the way I see disability as well as at some point in our lives, everyone is going to be disabled. Um, you know, either when we're elderly, who knows? The same is with your body size. Your body size has the ability to shape and shift throughout your life. So, you know, even if right now those aren't your access needs, maybe down the line they will be your needs. And wouldn't you have appreciated fighting for that before you actually needed it as well? You know, and maybe that's a little more selfish way, but that's how some people think too, is, you know, this idea of, well, you may not need it now, but you might need it at some point. Yeah, it's sad that sometimes that's what it takes to get people to come to the conversation or start to fight the good fight is whether or not they're being personally impacted. I don't know if that's just a, you know, unfortunate characteristic of humankind in general. Um, and the pregnancy aspect too also really troubled me because while people's bodies are different after pregnancy, often for a lot of people, it is a temporary state of fatness. And that's where I was kind of like, okay, well, now that you have moved temporarily into this space, what are you going to do when you move out of this space? Absolutely. Are you going to, you know, maintain, maintain your enthusiasm for these issues? And luck, lucky for me, my friend is a wonderful person and she has, mm -hmm. but I don't know that a lot of people would. I agree. Yeah. So there's definitely, I don't know, underlying resentment. Maybe it's just because I'm tired of flying while fat and being in all these other spaces where you just have to shove yourself yeah. into, into something or, you know, when you're uh, walking between tables in a restaurant and you really want to make sure, you know, you're behind doesn't end up in someone's pasta. Someone Absolutely. commented on yeah. like, <laughs> yeah. it's It's true. It's yeah. true. And these are things that people don't think about. Totally. And, you know, as fat people, um, we have to think about all of those aspects. You know, there's been multiple restaurants that I've been to that I've really enjoyed. But while I was there, I was not physically comfortable. So that's going to prevent me from going back to that space or, you know, spending time doing extra research. Um, I recall um, back when I first moved to Vancouver uh, uh, almost 13 years ago, being part of a, a fat group and just f trying to find a restaurant that all of us could go to was a struggle. Like there, it just, it was always trial and error. So there was like one particular Chinese restaurant that we knew we could have a group of people. We knew we could all move through that space. Uh, easily. So that's the place we would always go to our meetups. And it's like, well, you want to diversify, you want to see different things, but you know, you don't want to have to deal with that unknown. I feel like the fashion industry is starting to catch up on that where they're like, oh, fat people have money to spend. So we want their money. And I, it amazes me that other industries aren't really catching on and realizing that fat people want to go out to eat, fat people want to go to a concert, go to a play, what have you. And 
their money is just as green as everybody else's. Well, especially in terms of restaurants, right? I mean, (laughs) maybe that's a little bit of a stigma, but I'm also a fat person that is raised with really good and diverse tastes in food. Like, you know, of all the people that are going to enjoy your restaurant, there's a good chance it's going to be the fat people, right? (laughs) Exactly. No, exactly. And you'd think it would almost be common sense. And unfortunately, it just, it isn't. Can you speak a little bit about the intersections as well between fatness and disability? Because I think there are a lot of points where it overlaps, but there's also ableism in fat communities, fat stigma in disabled communities. So can you speak a little bit more about how these topics um, might overlap or coincide or complement each other in your work in terms of assessing the accessibility of public spaces? I think one of the biggest things is that um, fat people and disabled people, um, there's a lot of bias. There's a lot of assumptions, um, you know, that if you're fat, you're probably disabled. Um, Or if you are fat and disabled, society sees that as more acceptable versus if you are fat and non-disabled. And, you know, just all those pieces of intersection and identity can make it difficult to to move this through this world as well. Some of the needs that can accommodate a uh, the disability community also accommodates the fat community. So, you know, if we are thinking of spaces in terms of fat people, well, there's that crossover that, you know, we're meeting the needs of people in larger bodies as well as the disability community. You make a very good point when you say that fat people might be more socially acceptable if they have a disability that almost justifies their fatness. Like their fatness is a symptom or a byproduct of a disability because it, it shirks this sense of individual responsibility that's so prevalent in, you know, neoliberal capitalist societies. And I, I want to reject that Mm -hmm. because I think that fat people don't need to prove their worth despite their fatness that they can be fat because they choose to be or for Mm -hmm. it i guess that it doesn't matter why they're fat absolutely and i i don't know that i mean in so many ways fat activism borrows from disability justice Mm -hmm. you know and social models of disability and all of these things and it's quite helpful but i think we do stray towards also relying on like the medical model of disability where we have to find justifications for these things and like you said fatness and disability disability do have this beautiful quality that the boundaries around them are very blurry and porous and you might move between the two categories or you might move into one and stay there for the rest of your life. And so while there's a lot of, I think, hesitation to reject the conflation between fatness and disability, that does kind of reveal a lot of underlying ableism within fat activism itself. Absolutely. And also this uh, shared idea that non-disabled people assume every disabled person wants to be cured and non-fat people assume every fat person wants to lose weight. So it's this idea that society has decided what we want for ourselves and how we want ourselves to live. Like most disabled people actually see their disability as only in using that term because this world is not set up for us to move through. Um, you know, this a lot of people find that their disability almost is like a superpower. It allows them to see the world and move through the world in a different perspective that is unique. And specifically, I work with a lot of, I, I work with artists, disabled artists, 
and their experience as a disabled person informs their art practice. So without that disability, their practice would look different. And I think that's the same with, for me, uh, you know, as someone who's been fat my whole life, I would have moved through this world very differently if, you know, I wasn't fat or if at some point in my life I happened to lose a lot of weight. Um, but I don't think how I've moved through this world is, is wrong in any way. Um, other than the fact that the world for the most part has not accommodated me. Um, and this idea of having to convince people that I'm happy being fat. Um, and, you know, coming to that realization took me a very long time. Um, and apologies if this is sort of going off stream here, but I remember when I decided to start loving my body as it was, I was in my early 20s, and I remember calling my mother and telling her that. And she actually cried, not from joy, <laughs> um, cried because she felt that I was settling um, and, you know, versus learning to love myself. And I said, well, wouldn't you rather you have a child who as, is learning to love themselves in the body they're in and not continuing to think, oh, well, my body will shift, my body will change, and then my life can begin, and then I can have these things. Yeah, I, I think that's a really familiar experience for a lot of fat people, and I appreciate that you shared that. I think it scares people when fat people become less preoccupied with their fatness because it threatens and destabilizes a lot of the infrastructure of our society. Absolutely. So much money <laughs> is invested in us hating ourselves. And what is the world supposed to do if we stop? And I think that that, that, that comfort and that um, self-acceptance leads you to desire a world or an environment in which you are comfortable. Mm -hmm. And so often fat people and people with disabilities are expected to be resisting their fatness and or their disability and forcing themselves to comply until they are no longer those things. And the concept of an accessibility audit is literally saying that you deserve comfort and joy and happiness um, and acceptance as you are in the body that you have right now. And people don't know what to do with that. It's scary. Even people who love us, they don't know what to do with that because it really challenges everything we think we know about the human experience or how we're supposed to exist. Right. And, you know, it's, it's interesting is once you start having these conversations, people will start thinking about things more and they'll notice things more. Like, uh, for example, my partner, he is probably half my size, has always been thin. And, you know, in our eight years of our relationship, he now notices things, you know, that are either inaccessible or injustices um, within my experience. And he, you know, has said on numerous occasions, like, I never thought of that before and just was completely, um, I guess you could say, ignorant to the situation because that's not the life experience he had. Um, but it's also fun, especially in terms of accessibility. Once you dive into accessibility, you cannot go anywhere without being so critical and noticing every little thing. And But at the same time, like part of me is like, oh, curses, I can't just enjoy a space. But also, you know, how great that I can go into a space and identify needs that aren't being met for people who aren't even me as well. And that is a skill I can equip other people in my life with as well. Exactly. I remember going um, surfing or my friends had planned a surf trip to Tofino 
And I just assumed there weren't going to be wetsuits in my size. And when they told me that they had called ahead and called every surf shop until they found one that had a wetsuit that I would fit into, I cried because no one had ever anticipated my needs before. I've been on so many snowboard and ski trips, for example, with friends, and I don't snowboard or ski for many reasons. But one of them also is that I have never found snow pants that were comfortable. Or to be honest, it's kind of, it always felt humiliating, and maybe this is just fat kid trauma because I have also been fat my whole life, that when you go to um, get your skis from the ski rental place, they ask you for your height and weight, which makes sense. They need to know that information, but you're in a room full of people. And that to me is a barrier enough to not want to participate. Absolutely. And I don't think any of my non-fat friends have ever thought about that before because they haven't had to. I'm just the friend who enjoys hanging out at the chalet in the hot tub. I'll see you when you get home, which I would do anyway, even if I had snow pants available. But again, if I wanted to participate, it's not as easy. I can't just walk up somewhere and expect that I'll fit into anything. You know, the roller coaster seat, the ski boots, the what, like ski boots on wide calves are a nightmare. Oh, yes. It's yeah. awful. <laughs> but people don't think about that. Oh, exactly. Yeah, I was going to use the example of an amusement park as well. Um, like I, I personally, I live very close to Playland. Um, and every year we would get free tickets to multiple things, which is great. But there's maybe about four rides that I can fit on. Um, you know, and then my friends, I would always bring friends so that my partner had people to ride rides with, uh, you know, just, I mean, I'm also a little bit uh, nervous and there are some rides I wouldn't want to go on. Um, but, you know, it's, it's that idea of we can go places with our, our loved ones, with our friends, but we can't experience that full thing. Um, like I am deathly afraid of heights, but I would love to go zip lining you have to be under 300 pounds to go on a zip line. And I think this is one of those things like, you know, you can put up a suspension bridge, <laughs> but you can't let fat people zip line. <laughs> you know? That's what bothers me so <laughs> yeah. much is that if we can figure out other things, there's no reason why there are no life jackets with higher weight limits at this kayak rental place. Or there is no reason like you said, for a zip line to not accommodate people in bigger bodies. It's not that we are trying to defy the laws of physics. It's not that we are denying the reality that some adjustments might need to be made so that it is safe for people in larger bodies to participate. Absolutely. But it's not impossible. And I think that part of the fat experience, unfortunately, is being a bystander to your own life where we go shopping with our friends. And yeah, I get to look at the hair accessory section. Do you know how many purses and scarves I had growing up? Yeah. Because when I went <laughs> yeah. shopping with friends, that was the only thing available to me. And again, like I think that might be an unfortunate aspect of the experience of being fat is that, yeah, you are a witness. You don't get to be a participant. And that's just so depressing. And it's also so depressing that it can get to the point where you don't even want to try. Because then we also get into the part of the fat experience about humiliation and yes. public humiliation and being a spectacle. Absolutely. Like, I, I remember once I was at an Airbnb on the Sunshine Coast and I was getting out of the pool and the stairs had mel melted or whatever, uh, become weaker in the sun. And I went through the entire flight of stairs and I cut my leg open from my knee all the way up my hip. And my first thought was how humiliating. Not, am I okay? How am I gonna get out of the pool? What do I do with all of this blood? It was, I'm humiliated. 
and I think that it translates to other to everything else. Going into a restaurant and feeling like, oh, I'm so embarrassed. I don't fit in the seat, but I'm just going to sit here yep. and not say anything. And try not to move so that my seat doesn't break underneath me. <laughs> every fat person has yep. that thought. I really yep. think that's true. And, and every fat person has had that happen yeah. <laughs> in some sort of situation. And, you know, once or twice, okay. But, you know, when we can start counting on two hands, the amount of times we've had chairs break underneath us uh you know that uh, gets a little bit uh um like you said it's like it's there's that anxiety there's that shame and this idea that i'm wrong not the chair is wrong exactly because we're to always told it's our fault yes how dare us desire some kind of accommodation right <laughs> whatsoever i'm curious how would you advise someone who wants to talk or ask about accessibility uh, particularly when they're trying to find accommodations for their fat friends or fat people in their life. Um, not that they need a personal connection, but let's be real, that's probably when they would be making that call. Because, again, these elements of the fat experience are a lot of labor, including emotional labor on fat people. So what can non-fat folks do to take on some of that labor and give us a break? Um, I would say, you know, when you want to, let's use um, going to a, like a theater or... Um, a concert somewhere if you are going with someone who you know has a larger body you know make those calls call the venue um, because unfortunately most venues don't have those things uh, listed on their website uh, call venue ask questions find out the needs of those people in your life that might need those and do the labor on their behalf um, once you get that information share it Share it, you know, publicly. Share it with everyone you know, whether they're uh, fat or not, because then that gives a little bit less work for the rest of us to do as well. I feel like if you don't have fat friends or friends with disabilities, you should then also ask yourself why. Yes. Yes, that's you. <laughs> yes. Also, find yourself some fat and or disabled friends. <laughs> exactly. Diversify your friend circle just yes. a little bit. Um, so where can people learn more about you and your work or uh, accessibility audits? There are lots of really amazing resources out there in terms of accessibility audits. There's one in particular, Ramps, um, that is a self-guided one. It is very diverse um, in terms of what to look for. Uh, the organization I work with, we are called Kickstart Disability Arts and Culture. You can find us on online, kickstartdisability.ca. Um, we have a bit of information on our website, specifically um, audits on Vancouver Civic Theatres. So that is a little bit of information you can find um, just if you have any questions about that. I'd also uh, encourage folks who are based in Vancouver in the Lower Mainland. There's a really amazing organization called Creating Accessible Neighborhoods. And while that was born out of the disability community, um, they really address all aspects of accessibility in terms of body size, um, strong ties to the LGBTQ2 community, and really addressing accessibility in a really wholesome way. Thank you. Thanks so much for chatting with me today. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. This podcast is produced and directed by me, Layla Cameron. Both audio and video versions of this podcast were edited by Ari Conrad Birch. Each interview was filmed and audio recorded by Rami McHale. Additional video was filmed and edited by Felix Naud and directed by ETW Media Productions. 
The music for this season is by the band Parlor Panther. Funding for this podcast is supported by TELUS StoryHive.